The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. All right, church, our text for today is Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, if you would like to read along with me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the word of the Lord. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. Uh, We have officially hit the halfway point in Paul's letter to the Philippians, which makes the first word of chapter 3 rather humorous. Uh, Look at it, Philippians 3.1. Paul says, finally. He's, He's such a preacher. Finally, as if he's about to like finish up when he's really only hit the halfway point. Now, to be fair to the apostle, this word in Greek could actually be probably better translated as for what remains. As for what remains to be said, but that begs the question, like, what remains to be said? Because if we're honest, it would make total sense for his letter to be coming to a close right here. I mean, Paul has written to the Philippians to encourage them to have joy in Jesus in a multitude of ways, in a multitude of situations. And we've also seen him give a multitude of examples of what that looks like, flesh and blood examples of what it means to have joy in Jesus. I mean, Brad, a couple of weeks ago, just helped us conclude chapter 2 by showing us Timothy and Epaphroditus as guides, flesh and blood guides to joy in Christ. And after all of these instructions and all of these examples, what remains to be said? Paul tells us all we do is keep reading. Chapter 3 and verse 1, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. As to what remains, my brothers and sisters, here's what remains. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What's left to say? What what remains? Paul says the same thing that I've been saying. I'm going to say it over and over again. I'm going to constantly and consistently proclaim what I've been proclaiming since the beginning of the letter, namely, rejoice in the Lord. Like, is that not 
what we've heard Paul literally say, and we've also seen the theme just kind of circling all over the place. Is that not what we've seen him say a million times over? We're like, Paul, you've said this. We've heard this ad nauseum. You told us again and again to rejoice in Jesus. You've shown us again and again what that looks like. Why say it again? You ever felt this way, Shades? Like, I, I felt this all the time growing up as a preacher's kid. I, I heard the word of the gospel, joy in Jesus, proclaimed consistently and constantly. In Sunday school, Sunday morning worship, then again on Sunday evening worship, then again on Wednesday nights, and not just there, I heard it in my home daily. We read about joy in Jesus. We sang off cassette tapes about joy in Jesus. Salty, the singing songbook, anybody? Yeah, that's, that's a church kid deep cut right there. You know, Salty, his wife, Saltina, and their little booklets, you know, melody, harmony, and rhythm. Okay, sorry. We'll move on. You don't know it. Don't worry. You're not missing out. All right. But my mother, I mean, like, like we were inundated. My mother even woke us up every morning singing rise and shine and give God the glory. We did not. But I, I felt like I heard, all I heard, all the time was rejoice in Jesus. Why did I need to hear it again? Why do you need to hear it again? You've been here before. Why do you need to come back Sunday after Sunday to hear consistent, I hope what you hear, is consistent proclamation of joy in Jesus. I try to say it in different ways, but I try to never say something different. What, what, why would I want to constantly proclaim joy in Jesus again and again? Paul answers. Because it is no trouble for me and it is safe for you. Paul says, here's what remains. To say the same thing again, rejoice in the Lord, and it's no trouble for me to say that again. In fact, we know this is Paul's joy to proclaim joy in Christ. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to proclaim Him. Shades, this is my joy. It is no trouble to me to get up here week after week and to proclaim to you joy in Christ. No trouble. But that's not all Paul says. Paul says he constantly proclaims joy in Jesus because it's no trouble for him and it's safe for you, Philippi. It's safe for you, Shades. What, why do we gather around this word week after re week, read it again, preach it again, sing it again, pray it again, come around this table again? Because it's safe for you. This keeps us safe. That causes me to ask two questions. How and from what? This keeps us safe. How? Paul, Paul, how does consistent proclamation, repetitive proclamation of joy in Jesus, how does that keep us safe? Guard us. How are we guarded by joy? And, and that begs the question, from what? Like, what is it even guarding us from? We're going to use the rest of our time this morning to tackle both of those questions. We're actually going to take them in reverse order. Let's start with the what question. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Buckle up. Here we go. What? Question number one. What does consistent proclamation of joy in Jesus guard us from? What does it guard us from? Paul answers rather quickly. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2. Look out for the dogs. 
Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. It's, uh, it's impossible to fully capture like Paul's biting rhetoric right here in, in English. This is alliterated. Paul's using alliteration. Sorry, that just makes my heart flutter a little bit. They're all capas. Like, like these words pop off the page in Greek. They come in quick succession, like, like, like a boxer's jab, and they conclude with this unforeseen uppercut. Who's Paul throwing these punches at? We might be thrown off by the types of words he's using. Dogs, evildoers. Might think that these are people outside the church, but that's not the case. Who's he throwing the punches at? We get a clue from the final phrase of verse 2 coupled with the first phrase of verse 3. Look at it with me. Final phrase of verse 2. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For, first phrase of verse 3, for we are the circumcision. Paul is warning the Philippians against false teachers known as Judaizers. These Judaizers, they have not found their way into the Philippian church yet, but he's going on and he's preemptively warning them about them because these people have followed Paul around. They have dogged him all the days of his ministry. He calls them dogs. They've dogged. It was as bad as I thought it would be. But yeah, the Judaizers, uh, they were Jews, ethnic Jews, who claimed to be Christians. However, they did not believe that faith in Jesus was enough to make one righteous before God, right with God, or the fancy theological word, justified. Faith in Jesus, great. Part of the equation, but not the whole thing. You want to be truly right with God? You want to be truly justified? The Judaizers said you also have to follow the Old Testament law. In other words, you have to become Jewish. And the biggest deal for them was circumcision. That's why they were known as Judaizers. They wanted to make you into a Jew. Circumcision was the big deal, and after all, why wouldn't it be? That was the sign that God gave to Abraham, father of the Hebrew people. He gave them the sign of circumcision all the way back in Genesis 17. This is a sign that you belong to the people of God. I'll read it for you. Genesis 17 and verse 11. God says, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised circumcised this was a sign of the covenant and to be uncircumcised was to be excluded from the people of god listen to genesis 17 and verse 14 god says any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant (laughs) word of god sounds pretty clear to me and the judaizers thought so too So, as Gentiles, that's non-Jews, that's probably like 99% of us in here. As Gentiles became Christians, the Judaizers insisted, okay, yes, you've got to believe in Jesus, but you've also got to be circumcised. That's what Genesis 17 says. You've got to be circumcised to be a part 
of the people of God. What's the problem with that? Everything. The problem with that, Shades, is everything. The consistent and insistent message of the gospel is that we cannot be justified by anything we do. Christ has done it all. He, he lived the perfect, perfectly righteous life that we could not live. He died the death that our sins deserved, and He rose again, defeating both our sin and its death. And through faith in Him, He takes on my sin, and He gives me His righteousness. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Christ has done it all. We dare not trust in anyone or anything else. To do so is to try to create a different gospel entirely. One where Jesus does some and we do some, so Jesus gets some glory and we get some glory and we boast in Jesus, but we can also boast a little bit in ourselves because we've kind of helped save ourselves. Shades, there is no such gospel. Don't believe anyone who tries to preach that. I don't care if an angel of God appears to you and tries to preach a gospel like that. Don't believe it. That's, that's precisely what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, Paul's writing, again, to fight against the Judaizers who had shown up in Galatia. And this is what he writes to the Galatians. He says, I am astonished that you Galatians are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And you are turning to a different gospel. You were called in the grace of Christ, with Christ enough, Christ alone. But you're turning, because of these Judaizers, to a different gospel. Verse 7, not that there is a different gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we first preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul says, I, I don't care if I change the message or if an angel shows up with a different message. You don't believe it. Let them be accursed. Accursed, that literally means cut off from the people of God. Do you see what Paul's doing? He is, he is turning the Judaizers' own teaching around on them. They said, Jesus is great, but if you're not circumcised too, you'll be cut off from the people of God. Genesis 17, 14. Paul turns that around. And he says, actually, Jesus is all. And if you add something to Jesus, even circumcision, you'll be cut off from the people of God. Accursed. He turns their own teaching on its head. In fact, that's exactly what Paul is doing right here in Philippians chapter 3 as he takes these verbal pot shots at, at the Judaizers. He uses three different terms to insult them, and with all three, he's turning their own teaching on its head. He calls them dogs, he calls them evildoers, or more literally, evil workers, and mutilators of the flesh. It's like, Paul, tell us how you really feel. Let's take these one at a time. The, fir the first one, he calls them dogs. This is jab number one. Now, when he calls them dogs, okay, we gotta, we gotta get a little bit outside of our image of dog. Don't think of your cute dog at home. I have a cute dog at home. You wanna throw up that picture for me? 
This is, not all of you have gotten to meet. This is Calvin. Uh, he's a miniature petite gold. He's the one with the hair. That's a cute, this is a baby and a puppy in the same picture. It's scientifically incapable to get a cuter picture than this. All right, but this is bad. Like, don't, don't think that. Don't look at it. Quit looking at it. Quit. The, that's not what we want in your head. Okay, you can get rid of that picture. In, in first century Greco-Roman culture, this is not the concept of dogs. Most dogs were not people's pets. Most dogs were scavenger animals. Think vultures. Like, how many of you want to cuddle up with a vulture on the couch? Like, fetch, you know? They were carry-on creatures. Like, they fed on scraps and on anything that they could find. And so, for the Jews, the Jews had a very strict dietary, had a set of very strict dietary laws about what foods were considered clean, what foods were considered unclean. You could only eat clean foods. And because dogs would eat anything and everything, they very quickly became a living image of being unclean. So it was not much of a stretch for the Jews to pejoratively call Gentiles, who also would eat anything and everything, call them dogs a term they use for gentiles and so get what paul is doing here he looks at these judaizers who want to circumcise gentile christians to make them clean and he says in doing that you're making yourself unclean gentile dogs turns their teaching on its head he does it again with jab number two he calls them evil workers they claim to be doing works of the law. Works of the law, you'll find that phrase all throughout the New Testament. It was almost a technical term, almost like a technical phrase in first century Judaism. Uh, it, was, uh, it was shorthand, works of the law was shorthand for saying that you're someone who lives in line with the law, especially with the three biggies. There were kind of three defining marks in the Jewish law that marked you off as a part of the people of Israel. We've already been talking about Mark number one, circumcision. Mark number two, we mentioned just a second ago, keeping kosher, the dietary food laws. Mark number three was Sabbath, keeping the regular rhythms of worship, whether that's the festivals or whether that's the weekly rhythm of worship, Sabbath. Nobody else in the ancient world took a day off. This marked the people of God off as separate and distinct. These were the works of the, the law. That's what they claim to be doing, the Judaizers. That's what they want to invite these other. That's what they want to enforce, not invite, enforce on these Gentile Christians. And Paul looks at them who claim to be doing the works of the law and says, you're actually doing works of evil. They're doing, you know, follow me here, they're doing what Scripture prescribes to do. And Paul says, you are workers of evil. Doesn't, doesn't this feel a little too harsh? I mean, like Paul, aren't they doing good works? These are things God commanded to do. How can you tell them that they are evil workers? This makes us really uncomfortable. This, this doesn't jive with our modern pluralistic sensibilities where we just want to say, hey, everybody's okay. Everybody's right. 
Paul here is being a good shepherd. He is willing to draw a line, and we all too often are way too hesitant to draw a line between what's false and what's true. But a good shepherd, Shades, I pray I'm a good shepherd. I pray the elders here are good shepherds, and that means there will come times where we have to draw lines between what is true and what is not. Otherwise, we do not love you well. It's true. There are people who get way happy with line drawing. And draw lines around each and everything that they believe. But this is where Scripture needs to be our guide. Scripture is really good at indicating to us the things that lie at the periphery that we can disagree about as brothers and sisters in Christ and the things that lie at the heart of the gospel. And we are so close. We are at the heart of the gospel. That you are saved, justified, made right with God by faith in Christ and Christ alone. And so Paul says, I'm going to get out my big fat sharpie and I'm going to draw a big old line right here. They're evil workers. If that still sounds too harsh to you, Jesus does the same thing. Jesus, meek and mild, that we like to picture as only patting little kids on the head. He says the same thing. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 22. He says that on the last day there will be many who say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? They're doing good things. Things talked about in Scripture. And how does Christ respond to them? He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I thought they were doing good. What made these people's good works lawless? What what made the Judaizers' works of the law actually be works of evil? Jesus told us in the phrase, I never knew you. The the faith of these people in Matthew 7 was not in Jesus. It was in their works. The faith of the Judaizers is not in Jesus. It is in their works. They don't know Jesus. This is what He says. I never knew you. They don't know Him. They don't trust in Jesus. They don't have faith in Jesus. And Romans 14.23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the largest definition of sin that you can conceive of. Whatever. I don't care how good of a work you would label it. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin because it's not done in reliance upon God's power so that God gets the glory. It's done in reliance upon myself so that I get the glory. That is the Bible's very definition of sin. That I reject God and put myself in the place of Him so that I get the glory that is rightly deserved by Him and Him alone. The Judaizers' works were evil because they led them to have faith in themselves. That they could save themselves by doing works of the law. Ironically, there's big irony here. Ironically, The works of the law were actually designed by God to lead them to faith in Jesus. Even circumcision. Circumcision is meant to lead us to faith in Christ. We'll talk about how in just a minute. I know you're like, how in the world do you put those two things together? We'll get there in just a second, but hang with me. He designed, God designed the works of the law, even circumcision, to lead us to faith in Christ. In Galatians, Paul calls the works of the law, they're a schoolmaster. The law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. But the Judaizers miss it. 
Which is why Paul punches them with his final insult. This is the uppercut, the knockout blow. Third thing he calls them, mutilators of the flesh. Or more literally, the mutilation. Like he's naming teams. He says, katatome, the mutilation. While in verse 3, he calls the Philippians, who are primarily uncircumcised Gentiles. There weren't even enough Jews in Philippi to form a synagogue. He calls the Philippians, primarily uncircumcised Gentiles, paratome, the circumcision. You can hear the word play even in the Greek, katatome, paratome, the mutilation, the circumcision. How can Paul do this? Like how can he call circumcised Jews the mutilation? and uncircumcised Gentiles, the circumcision. It is because the Judaizers have missed the ultimate reality to which circumcision was pointing. The work of Jesus. And that work has been applied to the Philippians. They've missed the ultimate reality to which circumcision was pointing. Christ! And Christ's work has been applied to the Philippians. Colossians 2 actually helps us out here. Uh, There were false teachers moving into Colossae as well. Everywhere you go in the early church, there's false teachers moving in all over the place. Situation hasn't changed. Situation normal. There were false teachers moving into Colossae. They weren't Judaizers per se, but they taught some very similar things. Namely, the false teachers in Colossae said that you would be a more advanced Christian with deeper spiritual experiences if you kept the Old Testament law. You'd be like, super Christian. Really deep relationship with Jesus. If you keep the law. Listen to how Paul counters that teaching in Colossians 2, verses 11 to 14. He tells the Colossians, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Non-physical. Spiritual circumcision. In Christ, you Gentiles at Colossae were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul says that the Old Testament circumcision rite was pointing forward to a greater coming reality, to a spiritual circumcision, one made without hands, one made by Christ himself when he saves you. He circumcises your flesh. Paul's playing with words right now because when he uses that term flesh, he doesn't mean your literal body right here. If he did, then only people who'd been literally physically circumcised by Christ himself could Paul actually be talking about. I think that's nobody. So we're going to say right here that Paul's using the word flesh the way he normally does. He uses it to refer to life without God. Life before Christ. And he says, Christ cut that off when he saved you body of flesh that was enslaved to sin christ cut it off when he saved you that's true circumcision even the old testament prophesied about a day when this reality would come deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6 and the lord your god will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring 
So that, here's why he's going to do this inward spiritual circumcision of the heart. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That you may live, have true life. This is the circumcision of Christ. This is what the Old Testament rite was foreshadowing. But now the fullness has come and his name is Jesus. This is precisely what Paul goes on to say in Colossians 2 and verse 16. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul says you've got these false teachers moving in your midst telling you you've got to keep the dietary laws, you've got to keep the days, you've got to keep Sabbath, you've got to be circumcised in order to have a real, true, spiritual relationship with God. He says don't believe any of them. Not for a single solitary. Don't let anybody pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. Days, festival, Sabbath, they're a shadow. They're pointing forward to something coming. And the substance belongs to Christ. Don't let people tell you you have to follow dietary laws, that you have to keep festivals, Sabbath, or that you have to be circumcised in the manner of the Old Testament law. Christ is the fulfillment of it all. He is our true food and drink, John chapter 6. He is our Sabbath rest, Hebrews chapter 4. And He circumcised our hearts by faith. That's what we just read in Colossians chapter 2. Shades, it is not that the law no longer applies to our lives. It's us. It's still the Word of God. But it only applies through Christ. I, I'm married. I'm still Jonathan. Even though I've been married for 16 years. Still Jonathan. But I cannot live as if I am single. I have to see my entire life through the lens of my marriage. We cannot live as if we are under the law now that the groom of Christ has come. The law is still the Word of God every bit as much as I'm still Jonathan, but I've got to see myself through the lens of marriage and we have to see the law through the lens of Christ. To try and apply this Word, the Old Testament Word, to our lives without applying it through Christ will not bring life. It will bring death and destruction, or in the case of the Judaizers, mutilation. Literally, they were applying the law of circumcision without seeing it through the lens of Christ. Paul says, all you're doing is you're, you're mutilating your body at this point, because that's not what circumcision is. It's been fulfilled. It's different. It's spiritual now. You're trying to apply it without seeing it through the lens of Christ. Paul says you've missed it. That's not true circumcision anymore. True circumcision is of the heart. A spiritual work done by the Lord Himself. What you're doing is no longer circumcision. Now it's just mutilation. And Paul's largest concern is not actually about them mutilating people's bodies. His largest concern is about them mutilating people's joy in Jesus. The the Judaizers ultimately mutilate joy in Jesus because they guide people away from faith in Jesus, from trusting in Jesus to, to trusting in something else, like the works of the law, to trusting in themselves and in what they can do. Paul says, don't follow these false guides. This, 
this is what remains to be said. That's how he introduces chapter 3. As for what remains to be said, this is what remains to be said. I've told you how to pursue joy in Christ. I've given you examples of true guides. That's how chapter 2 ended with Timothy and Epaphroditus. You got true guides. Now I've got to warn you about false guides. Don't follow these false guides. And shades, to you I say the same thing. Don't follow these false guides. They still exist. They're everywhere, including in churches. And they come saying things like this. They come saying, Jesus is great, but there's more. I've, I've got this one more thing that you need. That, that, and this one, th- it's, it's the real key to true life. It's the real key to true spirituality. It's one more thing that you need. Jesus is great, but you need this one more thing. And shades, that sexy message sells every time. It's... It's uber sexy to be like everything you grew up thinking, yeah, that's not really right. There's one more thing that you need. To say no, what you grew up thinking and hearing is the truth, that doesn't sell. Like, like the message that I have found a new key or rediscovered a lost key that will make you extra holy, that'll put you on a, on a plane above all other believers, that'll sell some books and pack out some conferences. Here's here's the key to unlocking spiritual blessings. It's always something for you to do. Here's the right prayer to pray, or or here's the way to name and to claim your blessings and get your best life now of wealth and health and happiness. Here's your work to add to Jesus to really make you right with God so that you really get all of Him. Shades, that is the way to get none of Him. You, You get all of God when you get Jesus. Period. Don't follow false guides. They will lead you away from Him. They will mutilate and destroy your joy in Jesus. This is why Paul consistently calls the Philippians to rejoice in Jesus alone. This is why he's going to say it again. Same thing again. Because he wants to guard the Philippians from false guides that would lead them away from joy in Jesus. That's the answer to our first question. What does consistent proclamation of joy in Jesus guard us from? False guides. It guards us from false guides. But that leaves our second question remaining. How? How how does it do that? To put it in a sentence. How does consistent proclamation of joy in Jesus guard us from false guides? guides i think we see the answer in verse three philippians chapter three and verse three for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of god and glory in christ jesus and put no confidence in the flesh paul says look out for the judaizers that are promoting circumcision why for we are the circumcision In other words, they are offering you something false because you already have the real thing. Jesus. And Jesus is everything that you need. Anybody who's offering you something in addition is offering you something false. And everything that Paul goes on to outline in this verse is solely to prove that point. That you already have Christ, Philippi, and Christ is all you need. He is what makes you the true circumcision, so you need nothing else. 
For, for the Judaizers, circumcision was supposed to get you access to, to worship of God in the temple. Right? Paul counters that by saying, we worship by the Spirit of God. We, we don't need an external, physical mark that says we belong to the people of God. We have an internal, spiritual mark. The Holy Spirit of God Himself. Romans chapter 2 and verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Circumcision was supposed to get you access to worship of God, as so the Judaizers thought. Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit, the true mark of the people of God. For the Judaizers, circumcision was a source of glorifying or boasting in themselves. It achieved them a special relationship with God. Paul counters that. He says, we glory, or boast is another way you can translate that word. We glory, we boast in Christ Jesus. Not in ourselves, not in what we achieve. We boast in glory in Christ for it's only by what He has achieved that we can have a relationship with God. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Him. John 14, 6. The Judaizers, circumcision was a source of boasting. Paul says, we are the circumcision who boast in Christ. For the Judaizers, last thing right here he tackles, circumcision was a source of confidence. It's my mark, I belong to the people of God. Paul counters, we put no confidence in the flesh. Why would we? He's already shown that by the Spirit, through the work of Christ, we have access to God the Father. That's Ephesians 2.18. In Jesus, we have everything. Everything that the Judaizers are saying they can give us through circumstances, we already have it all in spades. We've got the mark, the Spirit of God. We've got the one who has achieved everything, Jesus. We have complete confidence because in Christ we have access to the triune God. We have everything. That's Paul's point. The mutilation has nothing to offer us. They offer circumcision? Nope. He says that's not the real thing. We have the real thing because we have Jesus. Marked by the Spirit. Real access to the Father. All because of Christ. We glory and we boast in Christ and Christ alone. This shades. This is how consistent proclamation of joy in Jesus guards us from false guides. By constantly reminding us of the surpassing worth of Christ. And exposing anything we would add to Jesus as loss. This is how it guards us. Consistent proclamation of joy in Jesus sets up Jesus and says, look at His supreme and surpassing worth. Anything you want to set next to Him, it's lost. You've already got it in Him and more. It guards us by consistently wooing us, by constantly calling out to our hearts, our hearts that are prone to wonder. Don't you feel that? Our hearts that are prone to leave the God we love and chase after all the other joys that false guides point us towards. Consistent proclamation of joy in Jesus calls to our hearts, setting before us the supremacy of Christ so that we will not be fooled by false guides. We will see their trinkets for what they are. Loss when you set them next to the treasure that is Christ. 
told you, in case you didn't know already, that Holly and I are married. Been married for 16 years. We still tell each other that we love each other. It's true. Every stinking day. Why? We've already said it. We know it. It's like me as a kid with those stinking salty tapes. Like we're just stuck on repeat right here. Because it's no trouble for me. It's my joy. And it's safe for us both. For there are a million things in this world that would try to draw my heart away from Holly and try to draw her heart away from me. And so we constantly and consistently set before one another the joy and the treasure that we have in each other. This is how. This is, this is how proclamation of joy in Christ and Christ alone guards our hearts from false gods. This is how it worked in Paul's own life. Very quickly, we're going to look at verses 4-9. through nine. We'll get into them in detail next week. But this is where Paul unpacks this in his own life. Look at Philippians 3 and verse 4. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says, okay, Judaizers, I'll play you a game. Like everything that you think that you can trust in, all your works of the law that give you confidence in yourself, your flesh, if that's really the way things work, nobody can beat me. Look at verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day, just like Genesis 17 says they're supposed to. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a well-respected tribe from which the first king, King Saul, came from. As a matter of fact, that's who Paul, Saul, is named after of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That most likely means he's a native Hebrew speaker, a source of pride in a world where a lot of Jews did not speak Hebrew anymore. As to the law, a Pharisee, the most rigorous and scrupulous law keepers. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And to sum it all up, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul looks at the Judaizers and says, come at me, bro. Like, like you want to talk about works of the law? I am killing it. Nobody slays this thing like I do. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count every... Let's go beyond the works of the law. Let's go to everything this world has. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing no, it's almost like Paul has read Matthew 7, 23 and Jesus' words there where Jesus said all those works, I don't care, I don't know you. Paul says that's what's worth something. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, I don't care about that. But... What kind of righteousness do I want? That which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says Christ is worth more than all my works of the law because no amount of works could ever make me righteous. I could do it all and I would still lose it all. But because Christ has done it all, through Him I gain it all. Through Him I get Him. I get God, the value of knowing Christ surpasses everything. It's all rubbish set next to him. This is a fun word. Rubbish. It's the Greek word skubalon. It's a rather vulgar Greek term. It means, you might have a footnote, it means excrement. That's the tactful way, or as the King Jimmy says, dung. 
it refers to excrement or to stuff that's considered just as worthless, stuff you throw out into the street, which in this time would be excrement along with everything else, all the other junk. It's the stuff that would be thrown out into the street and the dogs would rummage through it. All my works, Paul says, they are scubalon. See the Judaizers? The dogs are rummaging through stuff like that. Paul uses such a vulgar term so that it might shake us and wake us to what everything is like set next to Christ. It's like scubalon, excrement, worthless stuff. You know, have a vulgar English term that means about the same thing. Excrement. Worthless. Don't, don't worry, I'm not going to say it. Everybody's like getting really tense, but I do have a moment of confession. I've only ever cursed once when I was preaching, and it was when I was preaching this passage, and I totally said it. I was preaching to a room of nothing but frat boys. I needed to shake and wake them. That's what everything is like set next to Christ. So Paul consistently proclaims joy in Jesus so that the Philippians would see him for the treasure that he is and everything else for the scubalon that it is. This is why Paul says the same thing over and over. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. For me, it's no trouble and it's safe for us. It guards us. Joy in Jesus guards us. Shades, this is why we will be a same things church. A gospel-centered church. We will preach the same things, sing the same things, pray the same things, commune around the same things, all around joy in Jesus. This is, this is why in my own life I open up this Word every day. This is why I get on my knees and I pray. This is why I'm totally okay busting out those salty tapes and playing them over again for my children. Because I want joy in Jesus set before me every day and always so that I see the surpassing worth of knowing Him and won't be fooled by false guides. I will be guarded by joy. Are you guarded by joy in Jesus? What is set before you day after day, guiding your heart to believe that that, whatever it is, that that is of surpassing worth? Today, I want to set before you Jesus. I've tried. That's all I've been trying to do through this Word is to show you His worth. And now... I, I want to invite you to this table to savor His worth. I want to invite you to, to sing and in doing so proclaim His worth to yourself and to those around you. I, I want to invite you to worship the only One who is of surpassing worth. I want to invite you to joy in Jesus. Shades, we do all those things I just mentioned. We do the same things every week so that our hearts might be guarded by joy.